As some of you know, I've been having knee issues since about December, where my knee's been giving me a lot of pain and it's been popping and such. And so after a while, eventually I decided um, to go see the doctor and they recommended an MRI. And I'm reading this report, I got the report back early this week about the MRI. And it, I mean, in all this, like, as a medical lay person, reading this report, it sounds like my knee went through a blender. Like, all these, like, meniscus tears and all this crazy stuff. Um, and at one point in the, in the report, it actually described my visual musculature as grossly normal, which I thought was, <laughs> which was a nice compliment that my visual musculature is grossly normal. That's something I hear. People say that about me a lot. You're grossly normal. Um, but MRIs are an interesting thing, right? I had to sit there and it uses this. So MRI is magnetic resonance imaging and it uses magnets somehow to like basically look beneath the surface, um, kind of like an x-ray, but not like an x-ray apparently, um, to use magnetic fields and such to kind of get a picture of what's going on beneath the surface of your anatomy and physiology. It sees through to see what's really going on underneath. Sort of like um, apocalyptic literature, right, as we've seen. Not apocalypse, like sometimes it's used in culture where we think of like the end of the world, but the, the, what the word apocalypse actually means in the Bible, which is an unveiling, an exposing, a disclosing of reality. Revelation is like an MRI machine that is unveiling the true spiritual reality and the battle that actually lays beneath the surface of this world. And the book of Revelation not only wants to present to us its own apocalypse, its own unveiling, but remember, the book ultimately wants to teach us to read our own world apocalyptically as well. And so if the MRI if, or if Revelation is kind of like an MRI where it's giving us this map and it's giving us this report about what the world looks like, um, we want to be not just looking at the MRI report, but we want to be like the, the Jobies and the Sams and the Abbies, the physical therapists in our congregation here who are able to look at my knee and without even having the MRI, they were able to kind of decipher and feel around and figure out what was going on with my knee. We want to be able to gain the skills so that we can do this in our own world, in other words. Now, as we're in chapters 12 through 15, remember the book of Revelation is blocked off into these sections of kind of sevens. We're in a section here where we have seven visions, seven and I saw statements from 12 to 15. And the purpose of this section is to give us profiles of the characters in this cosmic conflict. And we've seen the dragon in chapter 12, the dragon who's identified as Satan, but we ended chapter 12, as Danica read, with this question related to how the dragon is going to continue to wage his war. It closes off by saying he's going to continue his warring against the rest of the woman's offspring, which is believers, which kind of raises a question. If you just closed with 12, you'd be like, well, how exactly is the dragon going to do that war? How is he going to wage his war? And when we come to chapter 13, we see that it's through two beasts or two monsters. If you, I, reading the cat and hat to my, to my daughters, 
Um, if you remember Cat in the Hat, at, at one point the cat brings out a box and he unleashes what? Thing one and thing two. And they wreak havoc throughout the entire house. And they make an absolute mess of the house. And that's kind of how I picture the two beasts here. The dragon unleashes two beasts. Thing one and thing two wreaking havoc in this world. It's like a tag team situation. A dynamic duo. And they work together. The dragon, we saw, gives authority gives his authority to the first beast, and then the second beast exercises the authority of the first beast. So they're all kind of utilizing the same authority, which has its origin back in Satan. And so they're all working together, the two beasts are working together to serve the same satanic purposes. And one comes from the sea, the other one comes from the land, showing that they sort of have a universal influence over all of humanity. And so we saw last week that the first monster in the first ten verses is embodied first and foremost in what we call the state, the government. It's the empire, which for them in their original context here would have been Rome. But of course there's further iterations of these states across history, including even our own state. And so now we come to the second beast. Let's read the sort of the initial summary statement of the second beast in verses 11 and 12. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth this time. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, or this could be translated on its behalf, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed, which we saw last week. And so notice some of the attributes of this second monster. If the first beast used coercive power, it was warring, it was persecuting, the second beast, you'll notice, uses sly, deceptive speech. It speaks like a dragon. Its influence is through deceptive speech, and it's like a dragon. Its influence comes from the dragon. It is satanic speech, just like we saw the serpent in Genesis 3 who, who lied and deceived in his temptation of Eve. Elsewhere in the book, we see that this second beast is, is called the false prophet. So just one example, flip over to chapter 19, verse 20 with me. This is a section where Christ finally comes to destroy the, to the two beasts. And in chapter 19, verse 20, it says that the beast, that is the first beast, was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Okay, so it's giving a description of this chapter, chapter 13. All those things are things that we're seeing in this chapter. It's calling that individual or this symbol, the false prophet. In other words, as a false prophet, it, is, um, it represents false teaching. And what it does with its false teaching is it causes unbelievers to worship the first beast, to worship the state. In other words, the second beast, you might say, is like the propagandist of the first beast. It's the one who, who uh, proliferate, proliferates propaganda, promoting the worship of the emperor and of the empire. And so likely in the original context here of these first century believers, the first sort of prime example of this propagandist would have been the imperial cult. 
the idolatrous cult that prompted up the worship of the Roman emperor. Now, if you remember from last week, we've already seen that the first beast presents itself in some ways as an antichrist, as a parody of Christ. You'll remember the, 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 the beast is given authority from the dragon, just like Christ receives the scroll from the Father's hand and exercises that authority. We see that the beast here has its own sort of parody of a death and resurrection. It is healed from this mortal wound as though it was slain. Same exact language for the lamb, Jesus, in chapter 5. Well, if the first beast is a parody of Christ, we'll also notice that the false prophet here, or the second beast, is a parody of the Holy Spirit. As the second beast promotes the worship of the false Christ, the beast, so we know the role of the Holy Spirit's ministry is to highlight Christ, as we see from the Gospel of John. So as the Holy Spirit highlights Christ, so the false prophet highlights the false Christ, promotes worship of the false Christ. We also see this evidence of this in the text where he is said to be like a lamb, He's described as like a lamb, and so it's a deceptive sort of, uh, it has mimicking associations with Christ, the true lamb in the book of Revelation. And in verse 13, it performs signs, making fire come down from heaven, which mimics Elijah, the prophet, who called down fire from heaven. And thus, this false prophet is a counterfeit of God's spirit-empowered people, like the two prophetic witnesses depicting the church in chapter 11. We also see this from the broader theology of John. So if you will, flip over to 1 John chapter 4. We preached 1 John before we were in Revelation, and it's interesting to see some of these connections to his earlier epistle. In 1 John chapter 4, the first, looking at the first three verses initially here, verse 1, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many, false prophets, same exact word as in Revelation, have gone out into the world. And so we see the false prophets here in 1 John are associated with these alternative false spirits, playing a competing role to the Holy Spirit, we might say, a parody role. Verse 2, and how do we know the Spirit of God? Well, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that's the spirit from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And so how do you know the spirit of these false prophets? Well, they deny the true Christ. They are the spirit of the Antichrist, just as the false prophet in Revelation is the false prophet of the Antichrist the beast, the first beast. And now in 1 John, we see that these false prophets are sort of like false pseudo-Christian teachers. They're kind of like false teachers from, that kind of present themselves as being Christians. They've left the Christian community. In Revelation, uh, these are more likely the promoters of idolatrous religion, like the imperial cult. But nonetheless, at the root, they're the same. They promote false religion. And this makes sense because we see connections between Revelation and 1 John all over the place. Even in verse 4, it says what? Little children, you are from God and you have 
overcome. It's actually the same word as conquer in Revelation. You've conquered these false prophets, this antichrist spirit. How? We know from the book, by an abiding faith in Christ. And this word abide in 1 John has the same root as this prominent word in Revelation, patient endurance. And John is working from an end time sort of perspective from each book's. Revelation is sort of obvious, but 1 John, it talks about how we're in the last hour, and there's this constant looking to the second coming of Christ, Christ's appearance. And there's also this theme of cosmic conflict, where Christ in 1 John came to destroy the works of the devil, just like he did in Revelation 12, destroying the works of the dragon. We have this battle between the children of God and the children of the devil in 1 John, which parallels what we see in the book of Revelation. And so noting all of that, noting the role of the false prophet, noting these theological themes, the false prophet, the second beast we can summarize, is the promoter of false teaching. He is the devilish counterpart to the Holy Spirit. And what we see then in the book of Revelation is we see this presentation of what we might call um, an unholy trinity, a parody of the trinity. The dragon, who has been identified as Satan, he is the one who authorizes his false Christ, his antichrist. He is comparable to the father, the one seated on the throne, who authorizes and gives the scroll to Jesus, the true Christ. The first beast is like the ruler. He's the fake ruler, the fake king. He's the state, and he's a parody of Christ, the true king. And then the second beast, the false prophet, is the propagandist. It's the imperial cult who compares to the Holy Spirit. And eventually, we'll also see a harlot or the the prostitute, the great prostitute. And that harlot or prostitute is a counterfeit of the bride in the book of Revelation. You have a prostitute and you have a bride, the church. Two different peoples, the people of God versus the people of this world. Or also the harlot is called Babylon, which is a counterfeit of the new Jerusalem in Revelation. Which city do you belong to? Where is your citizenship? Babylon or the new Jerusalem? And what's interesting is that in the same order each of these characters is introduced in Revelation, as the book closes, chapter 17 onward, they will be destroyed in reverse order. In the reverse order of how they were introduced, we will see their demise. And each of these different characters in the book of Revelation represent a different threat. Each villain, we might say, represents a different threat to the churches. And this is how the dragon then wages his war against the believer. The beast or the state, representing institutional power and coercion, represents the threat of hostility and persecution to the faithful. The second beast, or the false prophet, represents false teachings or ideologies that would seek to sweep up the believer. And the harlot, the prostitute, or Babylon, represents the lusts of this world or corrupt economic systems. And so we have persecution, we have ideologies, and we have lusts. We have the enticements of this world. And those three threats then, those are the three threats that come at the seven churches. If, you, if, we, if we kind of bring our mind back to the early chapters of the book, chapters 2 and 3, we have the messages to the seven churches, they were each challenged by one of these villains. 
by one of these threats. Some churches were faithful and they needed to be encouraged to persevere. Others were sort of um, accommodating false teaching and they needed to get rid of that false ideology. And then others were giving in to different lusts of the world and they needed to be faithful. And each of these churches, as you remember, it closes each letter with a call for those churches to conquer, to practice patient endurance, to conquer over the threat that was before them, uniquely before their church. And the promise held out is that those who conquer, each church was promised something that will eventually be received in the new creation, Revelation 21 and 22. So we have the messages to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, and we have the promises of eternal life held out in chapters 21 and 22. And everything in between now, which we're in right now, the, the bulk of the book, is the call for the churches to do that conquering amidst these trials, amidst these villains. And so if the point of last week's sermon, the point of last week's passage, was that God's saints must patiently endure amidst the state's threat of deception and hostility, we see that particularly in verse 10. Here is the call for patient endurance in the faith of the saints. That the church before the state, before the persecuting and deceptive power of the state, must practice patience, patient endurance. Now look at me with verse 18 where we see the point of this passage. What is this passage trying to teach us? What is it trying to claim? And it says this, this calls for wisdom. It's actually the same exact language in Greek as verse 10. This is the call for patient endurance. Exact same thing in verse 18. This is the call for wisdom. So if we need patient endurance before the first beast, the state, we need wisdom, we need understanding, we need to be discerning in light of the false prophet. Now, as we said, for them then, in the first context, this would have been imperial, probably the imperial cult of Rome that worshipped the emperor, the beast. But now let's do some MRI work ourselves. Let's look at our world apocalyptically now, shall we? Okay, so when we talk about a false prophet, the second beast, this is how we can define it. These are things that promote and serve the beast, which is the powerful, which are powerful anti-God systems and institutions in our society. So, so false, the false prophet is anything that promotes these powerful anti-God systems or institutions in our society. These are systems or institutions, in other words, that facilitate ideologies. Okay. Now let's, let's press in. Let's try to translate what this passage is saying into our own world. Because the book doesn't just want us to understand what was happening then, as we've said. It wants us to read our own world apocalyptically. So let's try to give some specific examples of things that we should be out on alert for. One of the first examples that I can think of as I tried to put together a list, one of the first examples of these idolatry, or I, yeah, idol ideology, not idolatry, ideology-promoting institutions would be the entertainment industry, film, or music. Now, we'd be naive to, to not recognize that within these industries, there are messages being conveyed. There are certain outlooks on the life that are being transmitted. Or think of advertising, the advertising industry, which communicates values. It communicates consumerism and materialism. This is what the good life looks like. 
Okay? And one of the interesting things about, as we will continue looking at these examples of different ideological systems, is one of the interesting things is it's oftentimes sort of like a fish in water situation. What I mean by that is if you were to ask a fish, you know, like, how's the water? They'd be like, what water? That's all they know, right? That kind of, how we, we talk that way, a fish in water, they don't even notice the water. They just, it's just sort of life experience for them. And oftentimes these ideologies that are swirling around in our culture we're so used to them, it's so assumed that we just sort of, we just kind of expect it as a given. We don't even question it. They're more, we don't even notice. They're more assumed than argued. No one has to prove these ideas to you. As a Western culture in America, in our context in America, we just sort of assume these things to be the case. They're seen as obvious. You might speak of them as sort of atmospheric. They kind of, they kind of create the atmosphere that we live in. And some of the ones that stand out to me as the most atmospheric in our age right now, I would say, are things related to sexuality and gender. Um, the idea that like sexuality and gender, that are, we, we root our ethics, we root our idea of what is right and wrong, sort of in this, I, we, our idea of right and wrong is primarily, primarily rooted in this, in this notion of freedom and self-expression. If you were to tell someone, well, how can it be wrong if it doesn't hurt anybody, that's sort of assumed to be like an obvious like, point. But in the history of the world, there were other cultures, other times where they formulated their ethics totally differently. And it's not actually as obvious as you think if you really pry into it. So when it comes to gender and sort of making distinctions among the genders or perceiving different roles as inherently oppressive or conceiving of different uh, forms of sexuality as self-expression, so of course it's true and good. It's atmospheric. It's sort of like, it's sort of just assumed to be obvious in our culture. Okay, let's continue. We've looked at entertainment and advertising. Another obvious one would be news media and its ability to promote certain ideologies. Or on the other hand of news media would be um, if there's a bent towards kind of being inclined towards the news media, on the other hand, there can be an overreactionary hyper-skepticism of facts and journalism that tends into conspiracy theory, justifying itself on the basis of distrust. And as Christians, we of all people who care utmostly about the truth, people who believe in the gospel of truth, we of all people should be the least likely to embrace conspiracy theories and the like. And our witness is actually closely related to it because if we fall prey, if we say on the one hand, well, we believe the truth and we think the gospel really matters because it's truth, and then people see us believing ridiculous things over here, it hurts our witness to the gospel of truth. So news media or conspiracy theories. Another obvious one would be political agendas. Both parties, in different ways, both parties do this, but in different ways, trying to co-opt our faith for its political partisan purposes. And in so doing, they compromise our faith in the process. And when we buy into certain political agendas, what we oftentimes find ourselves doing is outsourcing our theological, ethical, political thinking to the political party. They'll tell us what to think theologically. It doesn't take long to realize that we are being discipled by our politics. I mean, just think about, you can look up the statistics of how much people watch um, political shows and political comment, listen to political commentary and stuff. The hours, the average hours that someone puts in on a weekly basis to kind of absorbing this political commentary. 
compared to what, the maybe one hour that the pastor has with you on a Sunday morning? I mean, it's impossible to compete with that. We are being discipled by our political media. That is forming our, our catechism, essentially, on how to think about politics. And so let me just, this is, this is I, admittedly, this is just pastoral advice. I'm understanding that what I'm about to say doesn't come straight out of the text. But let me just give you some pastoral advice, my kind of judgment, my sort of uh, best judgment on the matter, and hopefully this is wise. Let's stop watching partisan political pundits, shall we? Okay, think about it. They're not designed to, to give a fair, level-headed argument that takes into consideration the best that their opponents have to offer. No, they want more views. That's how the industry works. And so they deliberately try to be as sensational as possible, painting their opponents in the worst possible light. They're not exactly a bastion of balanced, healthy dialogue, are they? This isn't rocket scientists. Rocket scientists exists on both sides of the aisle. <clears throat> And if you think that they are representing fair, balanced discussion, then unfortunately you've probably been duped into their marketing scheme. So listen, don't willingly subject yourself to something that is in its design unhealthy for you. It's harmful for your ability to carry out fair, balanced, critical thinking. It's not designed to do that. It's not designed to help you in that front. And so I'm convinced that we'd be far healthier as a society, let alone as a church, if we just ripped that right out of, our, out of our diet, if we stopped watching them. What if for every hour we would, we would have spent watching some online cable news pundit or radio pundit or something like that? I'm not saying don't watch the news, but I'm talking about pundits, partisan pundits. What if for every hour we would have watched something like that, we spend reading our Bible? I think we'd be far more balanced, far more level-headed. Let's go on. Further examples. Educational institutions. Okay? Just think about the, the, the power that an educational institution has. That should it get behind any false ideas, it has the potential for being a tremendous force of promoting ideology. Or lastly, how about the internet, our smartphones, social media, algorithms, these things dictate to us this content that's being pushed before us. We'd be naive to think that that's not a significant factor in the way that we think and do our thinking. Okay? And all of these, okay, there's enough here to step on everybody's toes this morning, right? Okay? All of these, though, are all the more dangerous when we think that these sort of ideologies being promoted are compatible with, scriptural, with a scriptural worldview. Our guard is then down at that point. And so we need to be aware, try to think about where you most likely need to be aware, the ones that you are most susceptible to. And we don't have time to get into how we would dissect and handle all of these, but maybe spend some time this afternoon thinking about practical ways you can be on guard against some of these, against the algorithms, against the social media, against the things that you consume in the media. How can you be on guard to wisely and discerningly navigate these things that are bombarding us in our culture, that create the atmosphere for how we think, okay? Let's not be naive that if apocalyptic literature aims to unveil things as they truly are, to unveil things as God sees them, let's not be naive to the fact that the world has its own apocalyptic literature. 
so to say, its own apocalyptic material. It wants us to see things its way. It wants to capture our imaginations. With that said, let us work now through three of the characteristics of this false prophet as we find it in our text. The first, in verses 13 through 14, is that the false prophet, the second beast, performs signs to deceive. Look at verse 13 and 14 with me. The false prophet, it, performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And so here we see that this imagery represents the deceptive power of ideology, the deceptive power of ideology. It's depicted here as, as having this sort of this imagery of being able to perform signs, which it's shown to be sort of the work of a counterfeit prophet with its own counterfeit God. And when it talks about making an idol here, remember this is symbolism. This isn't like we're expecting there to be some little, literal image constructed. But it's talking about ideology's ability to implant false worship in the hearts of unbelievers. Secondly, in verse 15, we see that not only does the false prophet deceive with its ideology, but we also see that it has the ability to empower idolatry and persecution for those who refuse. Look at verse 15 with me. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And so we see this image here. It's an image that all must worship or else they will be slain, which of course reminds us of Daniel 3, right? Where we see that Nebuchadnezzar erects a golden image that all must worship, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faithfully refuse to worship it which here then is the call of the church in this age as well. We will not go after idolatries. And when the false prophet gives breath to the image so that it, it seemingly comes to life, we might say, again, this isn't some literal futuristic description like we're going to expect some robot idol someday or something like that. Instead, what? This is imagery that conveys the false prophet's ideology's ability to empower worship of the beast. It animates the worship of the beast through, notice this, through deceptive teachings, through deceptive ideas. It, it animates the beast so that it might speak. The second beast's ability to deceive is through its speaking ability, communication, ideas. And so this represents the persecution for all those who abstain from false worship. And we see this even in the original context, that in letters that we have from shortly after this time, there was a magistrate named Pliny who wrote to the emperor Trajan at that time. And we see that it was Pliny's policy to test Christians by forcing them to, to, to curse Christ and to offer prayer with incense to an image of the emperor, the beast in other words, or be killed. And so this was something that very much did literally happen. Christians were killed if they did not curse Christ and worship the image of the emperor. The last trait we find of our false prophet here is in verses 16 through 18, which I imagine all of you have been waiting for this whole time, this mark of the beast, okay? Verses 16 through 18. 
Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the, na- or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Okay, so we see here that um, the unbelievers are marked with the beast's name or the number representing its name. And there are probably two views on this that are most likely. The first is that this is referring to Nero. As we saw, Nero is potentially alluded to in the earlier uh, section of this chapter with the beast. Okay, and there's this thing called uh, gematria, which is basically it's a way of using letters of an alphabet to calculate um, numbers, to calculate values. Okay? So you think about Roman numerals. Roman numerals are letters, but you can use them to write numbers. Okay? So it's kind of like that. Every letter in that time period could have also been seen to designate a number or a value. And if you transliterate this into Hebrew, which admittedly makes this position a little bit more difficult because it requires transliterating it from Greek to Hebrew, it can come out to Caesar Nero, okay? And that, that's the value 666, okay? So it, other aspects of the text that might lean this way is that it says that this number signifies a name. It says the name of the beast in verse 17 or the number of its name, So that could lend to the idea that there's an actual name that stands behind this. It also talks about, in verse 18, calculating the number. Is that a signal for them to like, hey, you know know what to do, calculate the number. So in this view, you would translate verse 18 then as the number of a man, as the ESV says. The second view sees the 666, that sequence, as each of those is representing one less than seven. Seven being the number of divine completion, perfection. And therefore, 666, each being one less than seven, is the number of imperfection representing sinful humanity. And so in this view, you would actually translate verse 18, not the number of a man, but which this is very much a, a possible translation, the number of man or the number of humanity okay number of all humanity and so the call for understanding according to this view would then not be a call to crack the code of this 666 thing but it's a call for wisdom for discernment amidst the threat of ideologies it's a spiritual call in other words not an intellectual call it's not a call to figure out a puzzle but it's a call for faithful vigilance and not cleverness in solving the puzzle. And this would actually fit the normal way that numbers function symbolically in the rest of the book, not as codes, but where the numbers sort of just function as symbolic in themselves. And this also avoids the subjectivism of trying to calculate what 666 comes out to, because there have been like a ridiculous amount of suggestions for that. It kind of feels a little bit subjective. Regardless, the point of the passage stays the same. Because you'll notice this mark of the beast is so obviously intended to parallel the seal on believers that immediately follows. 
You'll notice in chapter 14, verse 1, the very next verse, we see the 144,000, which we know to be symbolic of the church, they are sealed with a name on their forehead. Just as the mark of the beast is marked on the unbeliever's forehead, so the seal of God is marked on believer's forehead. And so the mark of the beast then, we see this similarity between either you're marked by the beast or you're sealed by Christ. The mark of the beast is not some literal, visible mark like a tattoo, a microchip, or the COVID vaccine. Okay? It's not something in the future. The mark of the beast and the seal of God are present realities. And they're symbolic. It's not a literal physical mark, regardless of whether it's Nero or it's just sinful humanity. The mark signifies your loyalty, your identity, your association. It's a mark of ownership. Does the beast own you or does Christ own you? Who do you worship? Do you worship the beast or do you worship the lamb? And so if you're concerned about the mark of the beast being some future device like a microchip or a barcode, you're significantly underselling it, actually. It's far more dangerous and insidious than that. It's not sort of out there in the future, something to be like, ooh, what's going to happen over there? It's still to come. The mark of the beast is right now, and it's been here all along. And so this segment here represents ideological pressures. It says that no one can buy or sell unless they have the mark of the beast. And in their context, this very well may have referred to, this may very well have looked like the fact that many of them were called to sort of give a pinch of incense to Caesar, as we know, in order to participate in the trade guild. You can't participate in the business of that society unless you worship the emperor. And it's not hard to think about ideological pressures in our own day, is it? Especially when we think about right now as the last Sunday of Pride Month. We think of the pressure to conform or face various consequences. Maybe lose your job. Or maybe you're passed over for a promotion or you're excluded from opportunities. Regardless, there's a loss of social acceptance when it comes to standing against these idolatries. And so the point of our passage, again, to summarize, is that God's saints must exercise wisdom amidst ideological deception and hostility. On the one hand, it's, we, must, we must exercise wisdom and endurance against hostility, hostility. We must be encouraged to persevere Even as the passage talks about believers as those who will be slain, those who will not be able to buy or sell in the marketplace of society, we need to be encouraged that in the face of that, it's worth persevering. But then also here, we need to exercise wisdom in the face of the deception of ideology. We need to exercise discernment as the beast uh, performs these quote-unquote signs to deceive the masses. The beauty of this, though, is that our ability to endure, our ability to exercise wisdom and to persevere to the end, to avoid the false worship, is not grounded in ourselves, is not grounded in our own ability, but ultimately it's grounded in God's grace as the one who seals us towards this end. As chapter 14, verse 1 says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their forehead. 
That if you're a believer here today, God has sealed you. He is the one who is ultimately promising your perseverance. And so as we see this in, in chapter 13, verse 17, this, this threat that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark of the beast, we can compare that to chapter 14, verse 3, where no one except the sealed, no one except the redeem, can learn the new song of redemption except the 144,000 sealed who had been redeemed for the earth. And so on the one hand, we may face persecution, we may face hardship for being faithful to Christ, no longer able to buy or sell in the marketplace of society. But if no one is able to buy or sell without having the mark, no one can worship, the song, worship God with the song of the redeemed unless they've been sealed. We have a greater privilege We get to sing the song of the redeemed. We are those who have experienced salvation. And that is a much greater privilege, a much greater joy than anything in this world can offer us. And because of that motivation, because of that promise, we are those then in in verse 4 of chapter 14 where it says that we, we don't defile ourselves, but we can follow the Lamb wherever he goes. With that promise in view, we have the motivation and the courage to follow Christ no matter what it demands of us. And as we saw in chapter 12, the dragon's efforts were thwarted at every turn. And so his attacks through these two beasts are undoubtedly destined for the same demise. The dragon's raging is nothing more than a frustrated reaction to his decisive defeat at Christ's first coming and his rapidly approaching destruction at Christ's second coming. As chapter 12, verse 12 said, it says, Woe to the devil who has come down with great wrath because his time is short. He's raging because his time is short. And so it's true on the one hand. Yes, the devil is raging during this age. But it's precisely because his time is short. To the believer, the devil's raging then is a promise of his demise. And so with God-given insights, this reality unveiled as we've called it, believers in Jesus can meet the dragon's worst in these two beasts with patient endurance. And so as we celebrate now the Lord's Supper, again as this is just week two of kind of getting back to our normal routine, and I appreciate you guys putting up with my cold this morning, we will be um, coming down the inside aisle to come forward as we sing the final song here. So kind of come, make, make your way to the final, or the inside aisle as we come forward to grab the elements and then kind of use the back outside aisle to make your way back to your seat. We'll sing the first half of the song as we do that, and then we'll pause, participate of the Lord's Supper together. You guys can be seated when you get back to your seats, and then we'll finish out the song. The Lord's Supper in the bread and in the, in the wine represents and depicts Christ's body given over for us in death. It is a pictured promise as we partake of the bread and the wine symbolizing his, his, his death for us. God is communicating to us in this institution that he is given to us and something that we grab hold of by faith that Christ is ours. Just as the bread and the juice is ours as we eat it, so Christ in his death on the cross is ours.
That is a promise that God wants to assure you of today, believer. And this is the victory we have, the victory that awaits us even as we endure the temptations of this life and the ideologies that swirl in our culture. Our, Our hope and our promise, our motivation to endure is that Christ has won the victory. Everything accomplished in the cross and resurrection of Christ, the defeat of sin, the defeat of death, the defeat of the devil, is simply awaiting its full realization at Christ's return. But it's already accomplished. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In church, as often as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's stand now as we close out this final song.